action in the street is exciting But Jesus, between all the bleeding and fighting I've been reading and writing We need to handle our financial situation Are we a nation of states? What's the state of our nation? I'm past patiently waiting and passionately Smashing every expectation, every action To act of creation I'm laughing in the face of casualties and sorrow For the first time I'm thinking past tomorrow Ladies and gentlemen, welcome into a brand new episode of Let's Dive Deep. My name is still Bradley. My name is still also Connor. Crazy how that happens. Today we are going to be continuing our deep dive into the hit Broadway musical and pop culture phenomenon, Dear Evan Hansen. Just kidding, Hamilton, because that other musical sucks. During today's (laughs) deep dive, you bastard we will be (laughs) saying farewell to the characters departing us after act one ends and also going back to cover various things we think we missed the first time as per usual we will be taking into account the disney plus version of the musical the soundtrack and of course the experience of seeing hamilton live so no matter how where or doesn't matter how many times you've seen it we're not going to do a second take you're just going to get the outtakes in one it's fine that's the way we do it here on let's dive deep no matter how you've experienced hamilton this is the perfect place for you to be as always let's dive deep contains adult content what kind of adult content who knows at this point we're just two adults making a podcast for adults about a play that's cast like that casts adults there's just lots of adults involved And so adult content may come up. So if you're listening to this uh, podcast in front of children, I can't stop you, but I I don't endorse it or recommend it. Additionally, Let's Dive Deep, Hamilton does contain spoilers. As this is intermission content, we will be mostly discussing Act 1 today. But as we have warned you before, every other episode, every single one, dear listener, there may be some spoilers. So you've been warned. If you are enjoying this podcast, you need to go and write us an email about anything, just so we know you're alive. There are hundreds of you not writing us questions <laughs> for the next episode. Anyways, we also did, I also did a Let's Dive Deep season on the first season of Bridgerton. They've renewed that show through four seasons, which is probably going to be the death of me, but that's okay. If you want to hear the Bridgerton coverage, feel free to check the show notes. You can also just kind of search in your podcatcher of choice, Let's Dive Deep Bridgerton. We also have a Twitter at Let's Dive Deep, so you can follow all the Let's Dive Deep stuff and an email address, wink, wink, letsdivedeeppod at gmail.com, where we would, and I repeat, underscore triple exclamation mark italicized whatever uh, we would love to hear from you <laughs> please we love to hear from you so we much. are coming we are up so... in one week on a q a episode and we have enough questions but we would like more we can talk for hours we would like more questions that's why we want more input because we talk to each other enough already we need <laughs> other voices in our ears so all of that being said that's the intro That's the skinny, that's the deets, that's the housekeeping, that's all the choring. 
So now let's sit back, relax, maybe grab your beverage of choice. I've got mine. And let's dive deep into Hamilton. Today's podcast episode is going to happen in two parts. The first thing we're going to do is we're going to do a little bit of a character analysis, a little bit of a deep dive, some cool things that we might have missed, and some extra details regarding some of our characters that are departing us after Act 1. And we have Peggy, Hercules, Lafayette, and Lawrence, I believe, are the four we picked, who are in Act 1. Uh, other than Peggy, we're pretty prominent in Act 1 and will not be in Act 2, so it's probably worth just saying goodbye to these guys, you know, having a little fun, chatting about them for a minute. And then at the end, we're going to to talk about all the things we missed or wanted to re-examine you know each podcast was like three hours long which is a long time but they could have been five or six hours if you really want to cover everything so we're just going to go through and find like little bits and pieces we want to rediscuss and, and and kind of re-talk about but there's no agenda there's not like a list of things we have to get to in this episode so it should be fairly free flowing and before we get started and talking about peggy here i just want to apologize from the intro for all of the dear evan hansen fans I love the soundtrack. I don't like the musical. And we we the reason why I did that, and again, I apologize, is because we, like we mentioned, we talk a lot. We had a whole preamble about Dear Evan Hansen where I said I didn't like the musical. And so I'm bringing that kind of vibe into Let's Type Deep Hamilton. And I apologize if you do like the musical. And for what it's worth, I don't want you to be standing alone on this ground, hallowed they may be. Here's the thing. It's a great soundtrack. This is, you know, part of the conversation we had earlier. I know you've heard this already, but just so that everybody listening can hear it as well. It's it. It slaps. It's great. It's amazing. The show is not good. I, you know, much respect to everybody involved. I get it. I think that different decisions could have been made, maybe. But you know what? If you don't agree with us. If it's your favorite show, let us know. We would love to hear from you. Get us on Twitter. Get, Get us, us via on Twitter. email. Tweet me at Let's Dive Deep. <laughs> you fucking idiot. Dear Evan Hansen is the best. All right. Anyways, let's talk about anyway. Peggy. We're talking about Peggy. That was that. Just so the viewers know, that was the whole Let's Dive Deep, Dear Evan Hansen. That's all it's ever going to be. It's just, I don't like it. No more. And that's, that's it. <laughs> no more. <laughs> okay. Let's talk about Peggy. So Peggy... One of the things I have put down about Peggy here, Peggy, a character who's very, her her presence is there and she's very funny. And every time she's on the stage, it's very notable. And when she doesn't have a direct role, her choreography in some of the songs with the other sisters is very, very present and, and there. And so she she's a, has a unique role where she does have some lines, but most of her presence is there through the choreography. And that kind of tells the story of, of Peggy, at least for me in, in act one here. But one of the things I really love is that we're never explicitly told that she's the youngest sister i don't believe we're ever explicitly told that i think you just assume when you watch hamilton that angelica's the oldest eliza's in the middle and peggy's the youngest at least for me that's just what i assumed watching it and still assume when i watch it and in real life they have a whole bunch of other siblings and like skylar actually has sons and stuff but it's not something told in the musical and what i love is that going on the assumption that she is the youngest sibling i just get such younger sibling vibes 
from Paggy, right? Or just like the other, kind of like the other sibling. Like when they're first are going into town and and Peggy's like, oh, dad doesn't want us to be here, you guys. I don't know if she would be here. And the other two are like, shut up. We're having fun. There's a revolution going on. There's all these bad boys. I'm looking for a mind at work. You can go to timeout, Peggy. I'm busy. I just like the, like, and then like the and Peggy lines. I just love the whole younger sibling kind of how committed the musical is to that and i just really love it yeah i do too you know i think in in my notes you're already speaking to what is the last of my notes right which is uh why is it that peggy is the one of the other dozen skylar siblings that was the one included and i think that you're answering that question already i think that First of all, I agree with you that the show does a very good job of letting us know that Betsy and Angelica are older than Peggy. We understand that without it being explained. Very effective show me, don't tell me storytelling. First of all. Oh, incredible. Because you just know. Yeah. There's no doubt that she's the younger sibling. And you're never told that. None at all. And and then beyond that, she, you know, because once we insert her into that role once we assume that that's where she belongs right we understand that oh she's injecting levity she's injecting youth she's injecting some kind of energy into this equation that the other two sisters wouldn't and i think that's why she's so endearing whether you are the youngest sibling or you've cared for the youngest sibling right if you're the oldest you can still find the youngest sibling in the show endearing right you can find her sweet (laughs) and i i think that that's really engaging and i think that uh, it's no surprise once you take all that into account it's no surprise that she's become a fan favorite because everybody loves and peggy the the way the role yeah the way the role is portrayed the way it's written you know, it's just, it's all good. Uh, it's, it's interest. Like the more you want to get into stats are for nerds, it gets more intellectually interesting, but just on the surface, she commands more emotional investment from the audience than you would otherwise expect. Right. And that's like really engaging. There, here's a really question for you. This is the, yeah. this is getting into next week's podcast kind of territory of where we're trying oh, okay. to go. But it's like okay. Q&A. I just got a question. Is Peggy the highest wins above replacement character in Hamilton? Uh, that might go to King George. I don't know. Sure. Right. All right. King George is good. Like, yeah. just wins above replacement. Like, right. Like, obviously the main characters right if you lose them right i mm-hmm. i just don't know i just think there's something about peggy's character that because it's an unnecessary character but because it's incredible that just like the amount she can maybe wins above replacement obviously isn't a reference that works for musicals but like the amount the character punches above their weight compared mm-hmm. to what their importance to the plot if that makes sense. Like, I, like, I don't know. Like, Dancing Book Guy is great, but he's not punching above, like, the same way Peggy is. I think I follow you. I mean, Book Guy, you know, I, uh, 
have my own particular and dedicated love affair with, right? Oh, oh yeah. Book guy is let's dive deep certified. Incredible. Exactly. But more people feel that way about Peggy equally when it comes to book guy, we're in the minority, right? But everybody, you know, loves Peggy as she is portrayed in this show. And on the one hand, when you talk about wins uh, V replacements, when you talk about like not even a supporting character, arguably an extra, a minor character, Peggy won our heart just because of how well the character is played and the orchestration of the Schuyler sisters, because it is so good. She and Peggy, I argue, is such a good line because of the upward lilt of the orchestration in those lyrics. And then later when, so the first iteration is Angelica Peggy Eliza, right? So you, so like it ends with that upward infleg, inflection. Later when it's revisited and Peggy comes third, you get that upward inflection again, but it's ratcheted up. It's even more dynamic. And Peggy. And <laughs> right, then it, go, right, yeah. it goes back down for the Skylar sisters. And so Peggy becomes the highest point of that song. There's something about the energy of it that just becomes so engaging. Yeah, she almost like feels necessary. That's maybe what I mean. Is it's an unnecessary character. You could completely remove her, right? And as long as you reworked like the spots where she has lines and choreography, like I don't think you'd even notice that much. But just she almost mm. feels necessary now that she's in there. I also want to point out with Peggy on my own personal journey with the character. I enjoyed Peggy more live than on the soundtrack. And the reason for that is because I know the actress that plays Peggy. I don't know if they do the same. I don't know, like, in the different renditions, if they always cast the same characters together. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know if the Lawrence actor is always the Philip actor. I'm assuming that's how it goes. But in both the UK production that I watched and the Disney Plus version, the original Broadway cast, um, Jasmine Jones gets both roles as Peggy and Mariah Reynolds, mm-hmm. right? Same with the actress in the UK production. I don't know her name, unfortunately. I could have just Googled it. I'm at a computer right now. Anyways, doesn't matter. Um, I liked Peggy more after seeing the second act because I know the actress that plays Peggy gets her moment to shine. So I like thinking of it as like, I think if you if you're just there, like it's a huge commitment to kind of just be an unnecessary character for a laugh. Right. But then when you get to act two and the same actress gets to really um, and say no to this, like really show off. I really like that for Peggy in a weird way. I know I'm pulling out of the musical and talking about the casting of it, but it did. It's it, the way it worked in my brain. It did make me appreciate Peggy more because I know the actress is just having so much fun with that, knowing that they're going to get to show off a little bit more in act two. Oh, I don't even know where to begin. OK, first of all. I love that you already brought up the double casting because that's something that I want to talk about with all of these characters because Absolutely, right? it, it's a thread, right? Second of all, uh, you, you talking about the casting is talking about the musical. So like they're, they're connected, but, uh, but that, that brings up the question, like talking about, okay. So, so all of that aside, it does it's related, but not, 
if if you're making the argument that Peggy is an unessential character or unneeded, and and to a certain point, I actually agree, because Peggy doesn't pivotally influence the plot, right? Like at no point does um, like Hamilton is not dueling with Aaron Burr, and Peggy shows up and says, right. "Here's your gun." <laughs> like that that doesn't happen, right? <laughs> yeah, no. So, that, okay, that's a fan fiction I want though. Yeah, Just Peggy being the second in the first duel. Anyway, but for me, it 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 brings up the question: Why Peggy? Right? Like, why out of the fourteen Skylar children, why is it Margaret that is included in the show? And when you talk about like what's needed, what's essential. I don't know. I wasn't in the writing room, obviously, because I'm talking about the show instead of being on the creative team. Right, absolutely. But there is something about the musical rhythm of Angelica Peggy Eliza that is just like, that's the name that fit the meter the best. Oh, I'm sure that's probably something along the lines. Like, maybe... I I don't think Hamilton is better if Peggy's not in it. I'm sure. just saying yeah, if Peggy's no, not yeah. in it, the story doesn't get... You can tell the same story without Peggy. You absolutely The musical can. is better for having Peggy in it, but you, yeah. can, you can just remove her character and none of the main story beats change at all. Right. It's one of those things where you'll never know because we don't have a version of Hamilton without her, right? We don't have, like we were talking about earlier, we don't have Snyder's cut of Hamilton yeah, without right, Peggy, you know? Uh... But I don't know, part of me, uh, and this is bringing the outside in a little bit, and and maybe this is ineffective analysis, or I don't know. Um, But it's possible that Manuel just fell in love with her story, and she was the one he wanted included in the show. You know, maybe he just liked Margaret a lot, right? I think it's more plausible that her name fit the meter better just because Hamilton is a musical that is based around its music more so than others are. It's not, it's not necessarily unique in that I'm not alleging that because you can look at plenty of Sondheim shows that are almost entirely sung through too. I get that, but this show is so much about its music as much as it is about its narrative that I can I can get Peggy being chosen because she fit the meter the best. There's also a lot of creative liberties that are taken with the sisters to, mm-hmm. to make them work for the musical, right? Obviously, yeah. in real life, Angelica was married before she ever met Hamilton, which was one of the bigger reasons that she ended up moving Hamilton over to Eliza, right? Mm-hmm. She was already married, whereas in the musical, it's not portrayed that way at all. And so once you choose Peggy for the register, right? Like, even if that's the reason, you can kind of just make Peggy whatever you need her to be. No one knows who Peggy is, right? If you need a third person to just be like the and blank, right? And that fits the register, you can just you can just create the character Peggy to be whatever you need because I don't know anything about Peggy. Like, no one knows who Peggy is. If that makes sense, yeah. like, you can just do whatever you want with that third sibling to make it work. Cause no one knows about these people. No, for sure. And, uh, I agree with that on a couple levels. Number one, if you can get, uh, if you can get a third in there, that's always better than just two, right? Like anytime you can have a triplet instead of a couplet, always better. 
the rule of three, you know, is, is as valuable in drama as it is in comedy. And speaking of comedy, when you get those yucks coming from and Peggy, you're much better set up to deal with the heartbreak that comes out of Satisfied, which is coming close behind the Skylar sisters. You know, you get a little bit of separation. But after the Schuyler sisters, we're dealing with the war, the marriage, and then Angelica's heartbreak and satisfied. And then we're, we spend a little bit of intimate time with Burr, and then we're back to the dire stakes of the war. So having an opportunity to inject some laughs into the rhythm of the evening, for me, I think that's perfect reason to have a character like Peggy at this point in Act One. You know, not to mention, you got to have three girls because in my opinion, the Schuyler sisters are Hamilton's uh, like allegory is the wrong word. Uh, analogy mm, equivalent. Yeah. Equivalent. That's the right word. That's the one we'll, we'll keep in the show. The Schuyler sisters are Hamilton's equivalent for destiny's child. And you have to have three women <laughs> on stage. I really do. I didn't know I, where I, that was going. I'm happy with where it landed, though. <laughs> I'm so glad. Uh, that was um, the the first thing that Orville Wright said to Wilbur after they took off. Um, no, I like. I really do think that that the Schuyler sisters are representative of that style of '90s music, and that they directly reference Destiny's Child, right? And so you can't have two women on stage doing that. And by including Peggy early on, including a third Skylar sister, then it lends weight later on in Act 2 when the Skylar sisters has been reduced. The Skylar sisters as a concept, I mean, has been reduced to just Angelica and Betsy, right? Because there's a musical pause there to reference the absence of Peggy. You know, when uh, when he makes that pivotal decision to not join them before he, you know, starts to indulge in his dalliance with Mariah. Before he does not say no to that. Yeah, before before he he... does not say no to it. it Exactly. There's there's a sejura between the names there in that verse. Angelica. Pause. Eliza. And then another sejura. The Schuyler sisters, and it references the absence of Peggy musically, right? So by by introducing her early and then removing her later, you're able to inform the characters of Angelica and Betsy. So, yeah, not essential, but damn if she doesn't add stuff. Whether she's required or not, she adds so much to the show. Humor, uh, fun, a certain sense of rhythm, and also some drama later on. By removing that humor from early on, you have the added drama later because it makes it more Angelica and, and Eliza against Hamilton. And it's just the two of them instead of the three of them, right? A little They're bit now of addition, a two-legged stool. addition by subtraction. Sometimes yeah. pulling something yeah. out like proves a point or tells a story. Like it's missing. It's not there. 
Yeah. So it like it's noticeably like, hey, wait a second, where where did that go? The first yeah. time I watched Hamilton, I didn't notice because I the first time I ever watched it anywhere was just live, and you're just like getting everything like blasted in your face, like it's just all like, wow, this is so cool. So it's hard to keep track of it. But the first time I watched the Disney Plus version, I was like, hey, wait, where'd she go? <laughs> like, does she die? Like, there's no explanation, and you don't need it because they do reference it musically. But when you mm-hmm. think about it, you're like, what? Like, what happened to her? Like, who? <laughs> no, like, it's 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 really good. It's, I like it. I like how they can just not make a reference to it. Like, you have no idea what happened to her, where she went, why she's not in the second act. They never explain at all why she's not there, other than you can infer, yeah, we needed the actress to be Mariah Reynolds. Yeah. So she's not here. Um. But yeah, like you, you miss her, and they reference it musically. But you also don't need an explanation. You just get on with your life, be, like just because she's Peggy. Like you could just like she's there or she's not there, and you're like cool, right? But I do like like what happened to Peggy. Interesting. You have before we move on, we have a raid on the Skylar Mansion story in the notes, and I have no idea what that is. Oh yeah, thanks. I'm assuming so, Peggy's involved in this raid. This is one of my favorite stories that surrounds Hamilton that doesn't make it into the show. Uh, and I probably like, I did want to mention it and made it into the notes. Uh, I might have anyway, here's okay. We, we spent a lot of time sorting people into their houses. Peggy wasn't Peggy was not on that list and that's fine because she's getting her time today. Peggy is unequivocally a Gryffindor. So during the war, here's one of my favorite stories that comes out of the American Revolution is this one in particular. And it is a loyalist raid on the Schuyler Mansion, which is a large and respectable estate. And this kind of goes back to uh, one of the smartest lines in the show uh beauty's proximity to power because if you were in with philip schuyler you had significant standing in the continental army and so because of that the schuyler homestead was not only a political but a militaristic target so in 1780 maybe 1780 maybe 1781 there's a small band of uh, loyalist skirmishers that, and and different accounts disagree on this, but they were either in an alliance with local natives that they had like conscripted to join their uh, their forces, or some of them were dressed up as American indigenous peoples to scare the Skylers. And they break down the door of the Schuyler Mansion and invade the downstairs and start looting the place. Well, at this point, Angelica is with child. I believe uh, Betsy is already engaged to Hamilton at this point. And uh, Peggy is single and the youngest Skylar child is still downstairs. So Peggy Skylar and Peggy knowing, (laughs) knowing what's going on and knowing that she is the one 
that is not betrothed or with child at this point runs downstairs, grabs her youngest sister, taunts the invaders like she screams at them and like tries to grab their attention so they don't go elsewhere in the house, grabs her youngest sibling and then goes back upstairs. And this gives Philip time to fire a warning and alarming shot out of an upstairs window to get people to like come to the mansion and like reinforce them from the back right. and try to get the raiders out, right? And and this is, you know, this is potentially apocryphal. Like there's no one that has a photograph of the incident because it was the American Revolutionary War. Uh but rumor has it that there is still a mark in the banister on the stairwell where one of the invaders threw a tomahawk at Peggy's head while she fled back up the stairs with the baby and she dodged it and it clipped the handrail and then went into the wall behind her. Like, Oh, you you can, I just Googled it. You can go to the mansion state. Like it's a site that you can go see. That's cool. Yeah. I didn't know that. I was like, is that banister still even there? It seems like it. Yeah. It's just there's, you know, this is, it it is secondhand knowledge, but it's largely corroborated, right? So I'm, I'm either true or like at some point, there's there's one of three things happened. It's either true or at some point someone was like walking around the house just angry with a knife and just like carving into the, I'm going to tell a cool fucking story one day. (laughs) And just like, (laughs) as he carves into the banister or someone noticed a knock in the banister and was like, hey, look. This is a good prompt for some improv storytelling right now. It and I'm really gonna go is. For it. I'm going to have to ask you to send me the link because I want to know like how, how accurate my memory of this story is compared Parks, to what's docu- parks.ny.gov historic sites, Skylar mansion. It, there are photos of it being there. People are sitting in it and then people are looking around. <laughs> in it. I will, I will put it in the discord. I love it. I just, it's one of my, you know, it's one of my favorite stories of the revolution because it is a young, not yet independent woman, but 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 someone that has an opportunity to not throw away her shot, right? She chooses in that moment, like she's not she's not gonna have this moment of her life defined by her family's legacy. It's not gonna be defined by marrying into someone. It's gonna be about protecting her family. It's gonna be about showing bravery, right? And I have to wonder if it's this story that is the reason she is the Skylar sibling that is included alongside Angelica and Eliza. I have to wonder if that's why. I wonder if Lynn just fell in love with this tale of bravery. And that's why it's Peggy. Maybe it's musical reasoning. Maybe it's both. I don't know. But I just love this story. I mean, this this kind of bravery is what we see from Hamilton's friends, right? Like we it, see th- we see this from Hercules, Lafayette, and Lawrence. But in reality, we see it from Peggy. Now, there wasn't time to include this. Like we we don't have time to like build another set piece for the raid on the Skylar Mansion. I get it, right? Especially but, if none of our, none of our other main characters were there. Like you'd have to introduce yeah. Philip Schuyler, 
you'd have to introduce a younger sibling. Like, to tell the Peggy part of the story. Like, so not only would you be doing a whole other set piece and having new people come on stage in new roles, or at least recasting some of the ensemble into Philip Schuyler or whatever, yeah. you would be doing it to, like, dive into Peggy's backstory. Because you either do it to dive into Peggy's backstory, or you do it to kind of discuss, like, hey, the Skylers are a bit of a target. But, like, if none of the main characters are there, I don't know. I, I just, I totally get why it's not in. It's cool, though. No, Surely I do, one too. one of the reasons why Peggy might be in the musical. Yeah, I think so, too. And for me, like, I, I really do think that all of this history is is kind of satisfied by the line, looks proximity to power. Uh, you know, and and further on, uh, what uh, I, I, I may accidentally end up paraphrasing. Uh, take Philip Schuyler, the man is loaded. Uh-oh, but little does he know that his daughter's picked. Like, they, we do address the Schuyler legacy in the show. We do address the fact that Philip is significant and powerful. We may not get into the weeds on it, but we do at least touch on it, right? And that's enough for me. And if you, if you want to look into more, you can find articles like this. You can find stories there like this. There is a photo reenactment of Wait, the exact story on this website. <laughs> they are doing a terrible job of reenacting this from what I can see in the photos. But there is on the New York State website a single photo that is entitled A Reenactment of the Kidnap Attempt of Philip Schuyler in August 1781. Oh, that's right. Hessian Hessian loyalists stormed the back hall of the Schuyler mansion in an attempt to kidnap Philip Schuyler during the Revolutionary War. Well, there we go. There's There's a a lot of staff and maids running up the stairs. This is cool. All right, cool. We got the story. It's a real story (laughs) to some degree. The tomahawk part of it may or may not be true. May or may not be true. But there's a reenactment of it, which is cool. And as we know, anything that has been reenacted by anyone is automatically true. Right, absolutely. Everything, yeah. and there's yeah. never been a reenactment that hasn't lined up perfectly with history. No, exactly. no, that, exactly. That's, right. our, that's our official stance. <laughs> Let's dive deep. <laughs> Approves of the stance that all reenactments are 100% faithful to how it happened in real life. Yep, you heard Regardless it Regardless of folks. whether they could possibly do it properly or not. All right, let's move is, on to Hercules. Let's do it. We managed to talk about yeah. 40 minutes about Peggy, which is awesome. That's, that's <laughs> perfect for us. I remember when we first uh, drew up this episode, we said five minutes for Peggy would be enough. Yeah, we did. We were, so we're wrong. Only, we're only eight times over, which is a good amount. All right, Hercules. Um, you, you just have so many notes on all these guys. I'm just going to bounce off you. I just love, 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 love this portrayal of Hercules more. I've only seen like three different portrayals of Hercules in a variety of different TV shows, musicals, whatever. Mm-hmm. Right. Just, just cover this period. This is so good because he's just a bro. He's funny. He's worrying about how he's going to get corsets off and how annoying that is. And to be fair, it sounds really difficult and annoying. Right. He's like, lock up your daughters and horses. Like, whoa, okay. Hercules, what the fuck are we doing with the horses? Can we leave the horses? alone okay hercules like cool and then and then he's like the one spy this dude is the one spy responsible for all military intelligence gathering for this revolution which is awesome and then not only is he the one spy when he has his moment to reveal himself as the one spy he's got a hype man he's got people like lifting up the thing there's like the equivalent of fireworks going off in the background he's just like hercules in in hamilton 
is incredible, funny, perfect, amazing. I don't even know what else to say other than this dude's just, he's like a meme that's not a meme. He's only ever there when it's kind of funny, but like, I don't know, he just fits perfectly. He gets to stroll around and Hamilton hits him a couple times when the bombs are going off and they're stealing cannons and stuff. Like, he's just cool. He's just a cool guy with a cool role who like does cool things and is responsible for a lot and is forcing people just his presence make you makes you lock up your horse, which is hilarious. <laughs> well, I don't know if I could say it better. It's it's a really good analysis of him. You know, he's he's just this like huge bombastic character, right? For, for me, uh, he he kind of suffers from uh this this syndrome of being. Hercules Mulligan is kind of to Alexander Hamilton what Kronk is to Yzma in Emperor's <laughs> New Groove. Yes! <laughs> like, when you think about it? Oh like, when you God, really sit yes. down and think about it? He's exactly... He's, okay, Kronk gets the short shrift in... Yeah. Like, the, like, we can do a let's dive deep on just Kronk because he's not as dumb and just gullible as the movie portrays him when you actually right. analyze it. But yes, he is the Kronk of this musical. That is the he perfect is. analogy. Yeah, and if you really, if you really want to hashtag dive deep on it, right? Isma, in order for her evil dominion to really endure, she had more body men than just Kronk. Kronk was just her most trusted. Right. Of just course. like Hercules is not. Can we talk about that? Just a quick aside. Kronk is her most trust. I want the story of the other people close to Yvesma. <laughs> right? Like, it's one of those things where it's like, okay, if Kronk's your most trusted, who are the least? Yeah. Give me the least. You can't. Okay, anyways, we're like yeah, back her, to Hamilton, but I want that story in Emperor's New Group. I think her least trusted advisor is the actual lever, I think. Like, that's... <laughs> right, of course. <laughs> but no, I mean, like, to a certain point, in order of like the the expediency of storytelling, you have to distill things down into archetypes of entire groups of people. And that's why Hercules Mulligan becomes the only spy. Right? Now that being said, it it makes him a very dynamic character. Like he's the entire espionage arm. Okay, cool, got it. But and we've made jokes about that, but that makes him so engaging. Like, you know what I like most about his espionaging is that it's espionage within the musical, because all you really know about him is that he's a tailor and he's going back to New York in his apprenticeship. But the big reveal is that he's the spy. Right. So like, it's not even obvious. Like, so I like how they doubled down on that. Like it's espionage to the audience as well. Like Hamilton's like, how did we know that this would work? How you might be wondering how we knew this, this guy, like the play didn't mm -hmm. tell you ahead of time that he was the spy kind of like kind of did, but kind of didn't. They let it be a surprise. So like, he, I almost feel like he was espionaging around the audience as well. He was doing his spying around all of us. And I think that helps with the character that they reveal him later as the spy as like this twist, which I, I, I enjoy. No, I'm inclined to agree. I've, I, I've thought similar before, you know, because they, they never explain beforehand how he's going to spy. Also, right? give me that. I want that musical. Like, how do you spy? Like, he must be the smoothest talker in the world. 
You're like, yep, that waist will be 32 inches. Hey, where's your secret hiding place? Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. How many buttons do you want in this jacket? Hey, who's your commander? Where does he live? Right? Like, how, like, I want that in my life. Cause her, like, I don't, that's a hard thing. If you were like in the bar, like, there's the culper ring and stuff that worked through a bar mm-hmm. in real life, that makes more sense to me that you'd be able to effectively spy as when you own a pub and you're just like getting people drunk all the time. When you're at a tailor making uniforms, that the level of just you just have to be on your game all the time to make that work, I think. And I know nothing about spying, just like I know nothing about duels. Hashtag bring duels back. I just I think it's the same as a barber. You know, I when I'm if I'm getting a haircut back when I remember actually getting my haircut by somebody else, uh, you know, if you're getting a haircut and a shampoo that honestly being that close to another person is a fairly intimate relationship. And you can imagine that a tailor and a, especially if you're, you've gone back to the same tailor time and time again, you could imagine the same intimacy, right? Yeah. Uh, what I'm saying though, is like, it takes like, it's a consistent on your game effort. Yeah. You're, yeah. you're not just like at a pub. You can be, you can have like a one and done night. Like someone could just walk in, get super drunk and depending on their personality, they could be a Hagrid Hagrid type. And you can just slip them the dragon egg for the fluffy details, right? Like you can just do that as one transaction. The tailor requires more of an effort. And I just appreciate all that we can insinuate that happened off screen for Hercules. Yeah, that, that I definitely agree with wholeheartedly, you know, and we, we get a uh, proof of this being true. Like the, the extra effort being, extensive and and therefore like by implication in the show valuable right because the the show hamilton does have an implied uh ratio between energy exerted and the results that you get out of it you know it's it's a very labor-minded show the more energy you put into it the results you get out so we do get this suggestion that hercules was very diligent in his labors right uh and that's why he gets that moment of celebration. How did we know that this plan would work? Well, here we go. And now is now is his his moment, and he's going to show you. Like he's going to tell you, this is what I've been doing. Uh, I was I was in the dressing room having a cup of tea, and while everybody else was dealing with all these shenanigans, this is what I was doing to make sure that this would yeah. work. And in that song, like just to add on to the part I was saying before about how like the spying kind of happens around us in that song. It's like, I go back to New York in my apprenticeship. Like, he has the least cool thing to do. Immediately yeah. after yeah. that, immediately after that, Lawrence is like, I stay at home with Hamilton. We write essays against slavery. And then Hamilton jumps into like, we cut supply lines. We steal. Like, he's there. Everyone else is getting this cool shit to do. Yeah. And you forget about Hercules until he met. Like, I just love that flip for the character because it's what he's doing. It's what he is, is a spy. Yeah, no, it's the fantastic. Least cool thing to do, and it sounds like the least important thing because everyone else is cutting supply lines, stealing contraband, picking, choosing their battles, and all that stuff. And then her yeah, like, it's an, it's thing. another example of the show including a head fake in its dialogue. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, I, you know, I'm gonna go back to New York, my friend. I'm, you know, I'll, I'll be over I'm, here. I'm out of here. You know, and and then you get the reversal of that, right? When he blasts out and you get this loud, bombastic energy from him. And it wouldn't be as dynamic if his retreat earlier 
hadn't been as sheepish as you just brought up. You know, he's just like, oh, you know, yeah, he's like, yeah, motherfuckers, I'm back. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right? like, he yeah. just hops in. It's so good. So good. Yeah. I just don't... I don't really have much else for Hercules. Also, just want to call out the flowered girl at the wedding type of thing. Like, oh, it's awesome. so cute. He's the only one that doesn't get a date. Like, as they walk up, Lafayette and um, Peggy are like talking to each other and telling stories and look like they're gossiping. And then he just walks up, <laughs> throws the flowers like, yeah, OK, whatever. Like, why am I here? And then he leaves. It's, it's so good such an endearing moment there's a couple things left over about hercules that i do want to point out though um we've talked about or i've talked about music so much already i just want to point this out because i think i'm not going to dwell on it i think it's worth bringing up specifically about hercules though because within like our four friends right Hercules kind of rounds out the musical palette in a way that I think is very interesting and and arguably necessary because you have so many different voices of uh, uh of hip hop in this show and Hercules Mulligan embodies the voice of like Buster Rhymes and DMX like this very aggressive in your face like at times literally screaming barking voice of hip-hop that i think is necessary in a show that is the love letter to rap that i think hamilton is right you need that aggressive voice and i think it makes sense to put that voice in hercules mulligan because of his acts during the war and number one to me that makes him just such an interesting character because he was on the front lines stealing cannon shooting people alongside alexander hamilton and then became a spy like we've discussed that before but and i think that like your thoughts on that being surprising were i don't think you were alone in that being surprising that that combination of things right but i think it's interesting that they put that particular musical voice on him when he's also the agent of subtlety right he's the agent of subtlety and yet he is the loudest musical He's voice. the least subtle person. Yeah. He's, he's the person you would not expect to be good at spying, mm-hmm. which may be what makes it work, is you would expect him to be so bad at spying that maybe that helps make him an effective spy. People just underestimate the guy. And, and in real life, too, like, it wasn't just, like, he did a perfect job. Like, there's a few times he got arrested, and, like, people were kind of cottoning onto him a little oh, bit. Oh, yeah, like, it wasn't perfect. Yeah, for yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In real life, the spying did not go as, as smoothly as it went in in, in the musical. Um, one of the things I just want to point out with the actor, as I think mm-hmm. having Oak be... And it was the same with the actor that played Hercules and um, Madison uh, in the UK version. I'm not sure how the actor works now. Just has a very deep register and gives you more options, like flexibility, Yeah. right? I, I, think, I think Burr... Lafayette Lawrence and Lynn Manuel, right? They're they're playing with, and I don't know a lot about music, but just in my head, they're playing with similar registers or similar kind of tones. Um, but I think Oak is the one that stands out as having like a distinctly lower register, and that gives you more flexibility with the type of music you can go for and what you can write um, and how you can put it all together. Is if you have more actors and singers who can sing a, a wider variety <laughs> of different things, I think he he's distinct in that. Um, I think he gives a lot of flexibility to yeah. the, the four piece we get. 
Yeah, I mean, that uh, the range that he has, like, he's, in my opinion, the only one in the show that can actually, like, challenge Christopher Jackson where weight and gravitas are concerned. Right. That, right? Maybe that's better. Like, the low register, like, the gravitas of it, the graveliness mm -hmm. of it. Like, I think he brings that flexibility that I don't think some of the other singers have. And it's not like everyone has a thing they're good at when it comes to singing. Like, everyone oh, has sure. their. All right. That's all I got for Hercules. Before we move on, I want to point out one quick thing just to like give IRL Hercules his due. Uh, right. It's not it's not addressed in the show and it shouldn't affect how you view the show. I just want to spread this positivity out into the universe because I'm the one with a microphone and, you know, I'm going to say <laughs> you, what you I got, want. Use your platform. Exactly. You've got it. You've got it. Uh, the... Uh, because the show relies on double casting and the and the show relies on saying goodbye to some characters and then saying hello to new characters, which is the point of this episode, I get it. But because that is a thing, right, we we don't get the the rest of Mulligan's story. And I just real quick want to acknowledge acknowledge and pay respect to the fact that number one he did go back to his clothing company and ended up doing really well. But also, along with John Jay and Hamilton, was one of the co-founding members of New York City's first abolition society effort. And so I think that that's something that is forgotten because his efforts during the actual war were so monumental. But his, his military career is respectable don't get me wrong but i think that when we're talking about hamilton and lawrence i think that we should also give mulligan his due right because he was one of the original founding members of that first abolitionist society and i just you know i think that's worth repeating as i have done three or four times already so yeah so that's my Shouts, my final thought Got another Mulligan. mention of John Jay routinely just yeah, right. I, by Hamilton. John Jay is going <laughs> to pop up more than you expect, right? John Jay <laughs> is one of those people that anytime you read about this period of history comes up all the time. Like he's he feels just as involved as everyone else. <laughs> who lives, who dies, who tells your story. Shouts to John Jay, whose story <laughs> is being told by nobody. <laughs> right? Like, you know what I mean? Like, because when you read about it, when you just read like boring stuff or documentary, you watch documentaries, like he's a character, like he's a part of, yeah. they reference it a little bit, especially the, um, the Federalist Papers. Like he's a biggish player in that. Like he's around and he does stuff and he's responsible for parts of this and just, nope, not in Hamilton. Sorry, John Jay. Same with Henry Knox and the other guy. It's interesting Green. to me. Shouts you to know, them. Lynn my understanding is that Lynn was moved to tell this story because he was the, because Hamilton was the founding father that we forgot, you know? And I think that that's referenced in every founding father gets to grow old. Every founding father's oh, story yeah, gets it. Yeah, yeah. When you, when that line right, comes up, right. we'll talk about an act too. It's like, that's just him saying, this is why I made this. Yeah. This is why I wrote this story. Right. And yeah. yet when, and so like, there's some kind of like, there's a filter down effect. So like that was that was Lynn's response to every other founding fathers. And so he created Hamilton. And now the more I study 
Hamilton. And as I reread the Chernow book, I'm like, who's going to write John Jay's? Yeah, who's Hamilton? Because yeah, at some point, so like now you have your list of people whose stories have not been. Yeah. Done. Yeah. You can check exactly. Hamilton off the list. Like, who's next? Like, who is making John Jay the musical? Right. And right? conversely, I was taught every day about Benjamin Franklin. What did he do? What did he actually uh, well, do? Yeah, yeah. No, no, no dumping on Benjamin Franklin from, from me here. What I'm, this is what I'm saying, though, is that John Jay is one of those who lives, who dies, who tells your story. He's got a cool story. Wikipedia, Wikipedia John Jay and just read. He's a, he's a, he, I don't remember it all off the top of my head other than when I read his Wikipedia. I was like, holy shit, this guy needs a little more recognition. That he he does. And I'm, you know, n- no Franklin hate, but at the same time, like, come to the Constitutional Convention, he was already 80. Like, what did he actually do? Right. Like, yeah, hot yeah, take okay. from me, let's, maybe. Let's dive right, anyway, deep. Let's... official take is fuck Benjamin Franklin. <laughs> what did he do? Uh, That's if you our... haven't, if you haven't heard the Decemberists Benjamin Franklin song, though, get it up on Spotify as soon as we're done recording. It will delight you. Like it was, it I was, will, part, I will. It was part of the original Hamilton mixtape project. If I'm not mistaken, um, right. I'll, I'll find the link and send it to you. The Decemberists Benjamin Franklin song is hilarious. Anyway, I have taken us down a very divergent road and I, I like this road because I just you. get to dump on American people as a Canadian. So I have a, I just have a free card. Like, Oh, sorry, I'm Canadian. I didn't know. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I didn't learn about these people in school. Like everything I know is just from my own life that just happens. So it's like, I can be like, yeah, fuck Benjamin Franklin. What did he do? And then someone's like, well, he did this and this It's like, ah, sorry. I didn't know that I'm Canadian. Like, I just have that excuse. Like I, I didn't know. Sorry. Yeah. Allegedly he, like brought macaroni and cheese to the states which is cool <laughs> but like that's that's just another rumor lasting legacy craft, yeah craft right? dinner is still around okay we pay him his proper respect craft dinner is a meal that is sold on the cheap enjoyed by millions and millions yep. of people every day yep eyeglasses has... and craft dinner yeah <laughs> what? what did he do created eyeglasses that's not important that's yeah. not no one needs glasses you know, One of the two of us do... isn't currently wearing glasses right now, actually. Benjamin Franklin's <laughs> an idiot. You know who did do really important things, though? John the Marquis Jane. de Lafayette. Yeah, okay, okay. We're... <laughs> okay. <laughs> Lafayette, I... This is a pattern where I'm just going to just say very superficial, like, just fun things, and you're going to do all the analysis, but we're we're fine. <laughs> you have, as you eloquently put at the top of the notes, is there a batter badass? Absolutely not. <laughs> this guy's fucking nuts. This guy shows up. He's hilarious. The best change, maybe from history. Obviously, I think the change with Angelica. Oh, maybe that's a podcast episode later. What are the best like real life changes that they made uh, when they when he adapted it? Maybe that's a fun thing to discover later. Oh yeah, um, yeah. Should we rank them? That would be a fun. We'll talk about it later. Yeah, Anyways, yeah. We'll talk about it anyway. One of the changes I think would hit up at the top for me is obviously making Angelica single. So that whole thing has more. I don't know, mm-hmm. weight to it, and that's more interesting. But up there as well is like making Lafayette part of the bros from the very beginning, which is not at all Lafayette's real life story, right? Mm-hmm. The bro thing is a very Hamilton invention in a lot of ways. Sans maybe Lawrence to to just to just tell this story more effectively. 
But it no, works, there's no though. bad or badass. This guy shows up. He's hilarious. He's hilarious. He's super French, which is awesome. Like he he stands out from his contemporaries. the The way the character is written is very funny, right? He's I don't know. He's standing up on the tables. He's slamming beer glasses. He's an absolute bro. Moving on to later, he has one of the best raps in the whole musical. He comes up with the Yorktown plan, and I guess checked with Hercules Mulligan to make sure it would work. And behind this, I don't know how this. <laughs> But they don't go behind the scenes on how this plan came together. But like this but, guy is the But we know badass. that's that's how they knew that the plan would work. They so had I, a spy on the I inside. Am, just I one. Just that one. Lafayette and Mulligan have like some kind of messenger mail system, mm -hmm. where from from ship in Chesapeake Bay to Taylor in New York, there's some system there to make sure that the plan's gonna work. Yeah, naturally. Um, yeah, there's, you, you have a lot written down about why this guy's a bad or badass or the baddest badass, but he is, he just is. He's incredible. Hilarious. Amazing. So I'll just start there. Why is he? Well, let's, well, first of all, at bar mitzvah age, he already had his first officer's commission in the French army. I mean, he started young, right? So this is not explained, but at the battle of Yorktown, he's 24. Okay. Well, can we pause now, on bar, bar mitzvah age? Like, I'm <laughs> like, sorry. Like, you could have just said, could have just said as a teenager. But you, I like bar. I like I like bar mitzvah age. It's just very specific. Specifically, thirteen. Yeah, now, that's true. It is very more specific. Yeah. I understand that we had a different understanding of adulthood versus childhood then, as opposed to now. I get that, but can you? And also for for the pedants potentially listening, I also understand that your father or your grandfather could buy an officer's commission for you because that's just the way things worked, right? If you didn't want to be just a lineman, if you wanted to be an officer in the European armies, you could have your commission purchased. I get it. But he started at 13. So at the Battle of Yorktown, he was 24. What was I doing at the age of 24? Not overthrowing an empire upon which the sun never set. I can tell you that, first of all. Um, and then... Yeah, I was playing outside. I yeah. Still, it's still my job. It's still your outside. job. <laughs> I at least play inside. Yeah. Well, okay, can we pause <laughs> just a second here? Imagine having to listen. Like, you're in the military, and your commander is 13. Like, I don't care <laughs> what commission purchased what. Like, imagine showing up to go to war... And the dude who's responsible for your unit is 13 years old. <laughs> that would that would that would shake the confidence of the unit, I think. No dunking on 13-year-olds, but even the best 13-year-olds. If I rocked up like in uniform with a gun and said, "All right, where are we where are we headed? What are, what's the mission?" and a 13-year-old came in with the briefing plan, I mean, Lafayette's cool, but I'd still be like, "Eh, you're 13." Anyways. Yeah. I mean, you would you would have to be judgmental a little bit, right? So then, like beyond that, so after the American Revolution, and and I do appreciate that this is referenced in the show. I love this. You know, uh, I go back to France. I bring freedom to my people if I'm given the chance. We don't get a lot more about Lafayette's legacy beyond. Uh, uh, I help. Uh, uh, Jefferson in Act Two, right? I helped Lafayette draft a declaration, and then I say I gotta go. I gotta home back home. I uh, gotta return back home to Monticello, right? So once 
Lafayette gets back home, like we've had his send off in Act One, and then he helps start the French Revolution, helps storm the Bastille, then with Jefferson, based on the Declaration of Independence, helps uh, draft the Declaration of the Rights of Man against the monarchy in France, and then becomes the first uh, commander in chief for the uh, uh, the Garde de Nationale de Francia, uh, which is the first like major uh military force in the post-revolutionary uh french uh like citizen governed empire and then is ousted and is imprisoned and then called back and then the rest of his life is filled with turmoil but all all of it was about like working for his fellow man and it's all about being out there being exposed being on the front line it his entire life is a life of struggle being exposed being brave and at times a life of extreme violence and i think that this is one of the characters in this show that is best represented i think that the entire team does a really good job of representing lafayette in a dramatic way like i just out of all of the characters we're going to talk about today, it is a it is a really close tie. You know, maybe there's some dovetailing here between that adaptive choice episode. I don't know, but like Lafayette, I think is really well represented on stage. I think they do a really good job. Also, I'm not sure what year this happens, but I am aware that the park outside of the White House in Washington is called Lafayette Square or Lafayette Park. Um, yeah. so maybe one of the only non Americans in quotation marks to be like, like honored post-war possibly. I don't know how many non-Americans there were kind of helping out. I mean, presumably like if France is helping out, there's more French people than just Lafayette around helping, right? Like, I think that's a pretty big, it doesn't sound like a big honor, but like the fact that your legacy is still being represented in 2021. And that if I go to Washington, I can still like look at a monument of your accomplishments, even though you weren't American and after the war, you didn't stick around. You know what I mean? Like you just fought for this thing that everyone now has. And then you, you kind of just left. I, I appreciate that a, a little bit. Well, it, he had a huge impact on our culture and not just him. I mean, Rochambeau as well, because um, the, the game uh, rock, paper, scissors is uh, often counted <laughs> Rochambeau. Uh, just as it's counted rock, paper, scissors. You know, you'll right. throw Shambeau, right? Um, there's a city in uh in Louisiana, uh, called uh Lafayette. I mean, you'll you'll find many cities in the states, depending on the accent of the southern states. Though, uh, some <laughs> some states pronounce it Lafayette oh, instead no. of Lafayette. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's similar to like uh in Chicago, which is a northern state. Uh, there is uh, Houston Street, right? Whereas if you're in Texas, there's a city called Houston, right? right it's just okay, the, the the country is so big, you're gonna have a difference. Big in, with a lot of pronunciation, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Um, but no, I mean we are. I don't know. It's interesting. <laughs> Lafayette has a significant place in not only our historical record, but also our national identity. And that that legacy is portrayed, I think, very well in the show 
by how hard a decision it was to join in the French Revolution or not. Because that was one of our first big decisions as a nation. And I I think the show does a pretty good job of wrestling with this issue, right? But we um it's it's important to always remember that the American Revolution against England was the first modern world war. You know, we got England, uh, <clears throat> we declared war on England, we got Spain involved, we got French involved, we got the Netherlands involved, and we created a transatlantic conflict that eventually made the English have to quit. And our first and best ally were the French. And Lafayette was arguably the most important of our individual citizen allies within the French war machine. And with the Germans, it was Baron von Steuben, right? Rochambeau was important, and I appreciate that he's counted out in the show, but Lafayette really does deserve the place in American history that we give him. I mean, like, he... He was important as Hamilton. And I think it's crucial that the show doubles down on this. I mean, you and I have talked about this on a previous episode. We understand that Washington agrees to call Hamilton back to the front lines because Lafayette says there's someone else you need. Yeah. It's, uh, the you whole know? Yorktown thing in the musical is Lafayette's idea. Yeah, Yorktown is his idea. Bringing Hamilton back is his idea. Um, yeah, yeah, the whole thing. I just like how committed IRL and in the musical he is to just being a professional shit stirrer. Like he just, is like yeah. doing it, doing it for reasons other than just stirring the shit. But like he just like goes from place to place. Like in in like in currently in uniform for the people in France, he's gonna head back and overthrow. He comes to stir shit in America, <laughs> right? Like, I just like, I just like that vibe. Yeah. I just Depen- like that vibe he's got. Depending on the specific translation, uh, in, in like various, uh, records of him, like after his name, you find either, uh, the, the hero of two worlds or the father of two worlds. As a reference to, yeah, like depending on the translation and how you directly do it, right? Just based on the fact that he helped the American Revolution and then went back home and was like, okay, I'll bring freedom to my people here too if I'm given the chance, right? And he helped create modern America and modern France, you know? There is no badder badass. There just isn't. You know. All right, Lafayette certified the baddest badass by <laughs> Let's Dive Deep. Are we ready for Lawrence? No, I'm about no, to cry. Okay, so we already know, anyone listening already knows, Lawrence is going to be, you're going to talk about Lawrence for an hour. I'm going to talk about Lawrence for five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> and we all know how this, we know exactly how this is going to go. There's going to be some 10 minute conversation about the potential <laughs> sexual relationship with Hamilton. <laughs> and that's all happening. But first, before that happens, <laughs> I want to call out one moment. This also, I'm just going to do it now because we're in the Lawrence section. 
Um, one moment that I did not cover that I wish I did when we did the episode, but it fits with Lawrence, so I'm just going to do it now. Mm, what mm -hmm. I what I really enjoy about Lawrence's character is we often, because the play is called Hamilton, we often talk about the characters in relation to Hamilton in that order. Like, how do these characters drive Hamilton? How do they relate to Hamilton? How does Hamilton feel about these characters? It's, it's a very Hamilton-centric thing, obviously. The play is called Hamilton. But... At one point, Lawrence at the end of the duel, which shouts to Lawrence for being like willing to die just to show Charles Lee a lesson. Like that's like in the in the show canon, right? Like willing to die just because he's fucking pissed at Charles Lee. That's pretty fun. <laughs> Anyways, um, he turns to Hamilton and goes, you're the closest friend I've got, which I've always found is significant. And the play does a good job of putting them together more often than the other characters. Like Hamilton doesn't spend as much on stage time with the other characters. So you kind of get that vibe. But what I like about that is he's already friends with the other guys before Hamilton arrives. So he already has this friend group and Hamilton specifically stands out. And maybe this is more to your point about like the potential like relationship that they might've had, right? But I always found it cool that for Lawrence, Right, Hamilton is the closest friend he's got, considering that Hamilton didn't arrive in the show timeline until well after I can assume he was already friends with these guys. And mm. I just want to look at that relationship from a Lawrence to Hamilton point of view instead of a Hamilton to Lawrence. And I just didn't do that in the episode. That's a really astute observation, specifically because of what you mentioned earlier about the show presents us as these three guys exist. And then Hamilton is added to these other three guys. Yeah, and, and they exist in a way that they've known each other for a while and they're best friends, which is not really like how it works in real life. But in the play, that's what we're assuming. That's what, how I perceived it, is that not mm -hmm. only is he hopping into this group of friends, they're already like he's saying, I've never had a group of friends before. So you can assume that these guys are already friends. They've known each other for a while. And Hamilton's just being like plopped in like the claw and toy story to their life. And right. we start where we're going. Well, and this is a good adaptation by the show, right? Because my shot, the song, is in a way uh, Alexander Hamilton, the character's I want song. Because early on in any musical, you have what's called an I want song. It's where the protagonist tells you what they want. It's yeah, the so you I know want what, song. You know what they're here for. Like, why am I watching this guy? And in that in that song, he says, I've never had a group of friends before. So if that's true, then you have to present him with a group of friends that he can join. Right. So, yeah. So you have to have these three as a nucleus. And then Hamilton has to be the available electron that can like bond onto them. Right. Imagine, imagine if you you hear that I've never had a group of friends before, and then like the first act is like Hamilton's quest for a group of friends, and then the <laughs> second act is the war, and we don't even get the back half. Yeah, that would be fun. Well, that's cool. that's them. You know, that would be the Tom Cruise approach, and you're just setting up for the sequel, right? <laughs> yeah, right, right. You know, uh, Hamilton Two, Revolutionary Boogaloo. But um, but no, I think that line that you're calling out is significant. You know, that's that's Lawrence codifying not only for hamilton the character but also the audience you are the closest friend i've got like you're it like you're definitely going to be my second like aren't you do i need to revisit our friendship if you're not going to be my second like but but also i do not recall the actor's name but i love the subtlety of his delivery on that line 
because he's when he says uh you're the closest friend i've got there's a kind of expectation in the way he delivers that line right there's a kind of like um hopefulness to where he he really needs hamilton to have his back and it's done in a way that you can easily interpret it as romantic or just fraternal love. Like you, you can interpret that delivery that you're talking about earlier, that line, you're the closest friend I've got. You can, you can understand that as just, I need my best friend with me and their relationship on stage works. Whether you think they are romantically involved or not, it's just a really damn good performance. Anthony Ramos Martinez, Ramos is probably closer to how you say it, is who you're thinking of. And Thank also, you so much. fun fact, he is currently dating Jasmine Jones, who plays. Well, how about that? Cool. Backstage well, romance, eh? Pictures of them being romantic and i remember seeing a tweet from lin manuel one time being like yeah i set these two up it's fucking great <laughs> there's like a photo of them like making out or something and, and lin manuel retweeted it and he's like yeah who's responsible for this awesomeness lin manuel miranda is <laughs> oh backstage romance i love it how often does that happen is that a thing uh it is so here's so backstage romance let me spend the rest of the episode on this yeah, okay. I have my own version of this at work. I'm, yeah. I'm gonna leave it here so people are curious. We, I call it at work panic season. That's all I'm gonna say is we call it panic season. I'm gonna explain later. Just put that out in the ether. Is there an equivalent to like panic season at the? Yeah, backstage? yeah, for sure. So, uh, so in the industry, um, we definitely have panic season, but it's just the gregorian calendar year um backstage <laughs> romance is it's as common every, it's, just every it's just it's just every day we're uh yeah we're uh we're a friendly group of people um the thing about backstage romance is that it is as common as it is frowned upon it should never be engaged in ever because the show is going to fail because you're you're uh, do you know the the expression "you never shit where you eat"? Of course, yeah, yeah, it, it's that thing, right? But at the same time, it happens all the time. So yeah, but these these two actors, they're done with the show. They, I assume, they moved on, right? Someone else has taken their roles, you know, but they seem to be stable, so that's great. Um, but no, the the success rate is uh is minimal. Uh, yeah. anyway, <laughs> Lawrence. Uh, <laughs> worthy tangent though. I like, like that's the deets that like a non-theater person needs. To, I need the context. We're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna approve that rambling as like I need the context because I'm an idiot. Yeah, I mean it's it's worth discussing because it, it it came up you know relevant to the character we're discussing. In all seriousness though, like there are, um, I may have just brushed my mic there. You're okay. Hmm. In all seriousness, though, I know plenty of people that have met long-term successful partners in the industry. I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's largely frowned upon because theater as a business is a delicate balance between creating art and science and technology. 
it still is, especially on the level where you're producing Hamilton, right? It still is uh, a corporate entity. And so balancing romantic interests when that can be, can be difficult at times. Uh, I'm not saying it doesn't ever work out well. It's just early on, you know, it can be a bit tenuous. So, right anyway. Out. All right, now we'll get back to Lawrence. All right, so back to Lawrence. So, I know brought this up a lot. I know if anyone's listening regularly, they know how I feel. I know you how I f- know you know how I feel. But I think that Lawrence send off at the end of Act One, and the fact that he's not really by name brought up in Act Two, I think that speaks volumes. I like it. I like that after his passing in Act One, Hamilton's immediate response is, I have so much work to do. This is when Hamilton's drive for abolition really ramps up. This is when Hamilton throws himself into political and uh, legislative uh, life in a way that he hasn't before. Now, he hasn't had the opportunity for before because he was at war. I get it. But the fact that he has nothing to say about Lawrence after his death, the fact that Lawrence dies and he says, I have so much work to do, I keep coming back to that. That speaks volumes because when Hamilton has nothing to say, that tells you everything you need to know about how he's feeling. And he takes Lawrence's death and he uses it to catapult himself into nonstop. Also, one of the people, I guess, I guess a lot of people aren't dead by the end of the musical, but one of the people he specifically points out when he's kind of like this, the Hamilton version of looking through the veil at the end of the, the musical, like he calls out Washington, he calls out Lawrence, right? As like specific people he's seeing on the other side. Well, so. his. His last words on stage, Hamilton's last words on stage are Lawrence raise a glass to freedom from tomorrow there'll be more of us reprise. Right. Like the, the, la- the last thing that Lawrence says on stage is something that Hamilton says. The last thing that Hamilton says on stage is something that Lawrence says. <clears throat> there, is, there is a connection here that I, that resonates with me and even if it doesn't resume, resonate with another viewer on a romantic level, I do still see it resonating on a fraternal level. Because once we get into Act 2, Hamilton doesn't have relationships in Act 2. He makes more enemies than friends in Act yeah, 2. Yeah, you see what I'm saying? It like, pissed even, them off until they had a two-party system is what, where we start, and it does not get better. <laughs> it doesn't. Even with Washington. Right. Washington is his one male ally that really bridges the gap between Act One and Act Two. And even his relationship in Act Two with Washington is strained, right? There's a part of Hamilton that changes after Lawrence goes away. All that being said, though, I don't want to purely examine Lawrence based on like looking at him through the lens of Hamilton being the protagonist. And I really appreciate that you mentioned that idea earlier, the idea of like how people compare to Hamilton, 
because I think that that's something worth like including in my analysis going forward. It was just yeah. anyway. Well, Lawrence is in the something... musical because he's Hamilton's friend. Because we yeah. need a friend for Hamilton, so Lawrence is that friend, right? We, we, but just we while do, we're talking yeah. about Lawrence, right? Like Lawrence on his own has this whole first black battalion thing going on, like a very noble anti-slavery kind of thing going on. And Lawrence is doing that regardless of Hamilton. Like it's like he just is his own separate character. And he's not just the relationship to Hamilton because he's the main character. That's right. all I was trying to say. No, no, no. And, and I think that that's really important to include in the analysis because I think part of that whole I've got so much work to do thing, I think that that Lawrence and I'm at this point, I know I don't always talk about Lawrence strictly in terms of the show. At this point, I'm strictly talking in terms of the show. Lawrence passing and Hamilton saying, I have so much work to do. I think that that does, in the context of the show, inform Hamilton's thoughts about slavery and then later Eliza's as she tries to carry on his legacy and speak out against slavery, right? I think we wouldn't have that version of both the Hamiltons if we didn't have this version of Lawrence. And I think that it's a very loyal honest and respectful representation of who he was as a person in history. And even if it wasn't accurate, it's a really good version of the character. It's a very compelling character emotionally, right? <laughs> um, but I do think it's worth bringing up that I think they do a really loyal adaptation here. I think they represent Lawrence's memory well. He was already on his way to creating that first Black Battalion. It was the the early iteration of what we would now consider a state legislature in South Carolina that stopped him from making the first Black Battalion. He already had approval from the Continental Congress. It was the local state governance that shot him down, right? He was, he was one of the earliest people to be on the front lines of the battle between the federal government and the state's governments about what slavery was going to turn into and how, how abolition and liberation were both going to work. And he just, because of his bravado, because of his bravery passed before he got to see any of those things come to happen. Uh, I, I, I just, I, I adore that this show puts him forward as the brave and risky person that he was. Because when you consider all of the people that he was around, the people that he kept company with, George Washington, the Marquis de Lafayette, Alexander Hamilton, Hercules Mulligan, to say that John Lawrence was the bravest of them all is a huge deal. And yeah, that's how history like remembers him, banana. right? No, he's not. But that's how history remembers him. History remembers yeah. him out of all of these people. He was the one that was the most risky and bravest. And I think that this show does a really damn good job representing that. Right. Oh, I, I don't have anything to add on Lawrence. You're, you're just, your Lawrence coverage is 
is great, and I will only sully it with my Lawrence coverage. So I got no, I got nothing else to add. Uh, uh, well, how about we, as a battalion, sally onto a break? All right, let's sally onto a break, and then we'll be back in just a moment. We've covered Lawrence Mulligan, Lafayette, and Peggy. Eh, and Peggy. That was funny. And- I did that laugh. <laughs> Whoops, that was an accident, but like also Anne Peggy, right? All and right, then and then we'll, when we come uh, back, yeah. we will be talking about kind of some things we just want to talk about, re-examine, just quick two minutes. Like, hey, I should have mentioned this, didn't, cool, move on. Um, but yeah, we will be right back. All right, everyone, we are back from our little break that we sallied on to, and we are going to talk now about some things that we want to uh, re-examine, that we missed, that we want to chat about. Now, I'm not going to toot our own horn too much at the beginning here, but I rewatched Act 1 specifically for this podcast. I rewatched it specifically for the awards as well. So I've upped my Hamilton rewatch count to like 8 million. So... I was looking for things to kind of bring up in this section. Hey, we missed that. Hey, that's a fun moment we didn't talk about, right? But there wasn't a lot. There wasn't a lot of things where I'm like, oh, I don't think we adequately covered that. So this will mostly for the people listening, at least from my end, be mostly just like funny things that I want to point out. The first thing that I want to talk about that we did not really adequately mention is we we kind of went on about how funny it is that Hamilton is effectively radicalized by domestic terrorists. And that's a very <laughs> funny way. But I want to point out just how insane this bro squad is compared to like a real life bro squad in 2021. So right now in my life, if I want to hang out with my three, if I find three friends that I hang out with a list of things that we might do, we might go on a bar crawl, right? We might go to a single pub for some pints. Maybe we'll head to the movies, right? We might go to Bart on the beach, right? Like this, or that's a Vancouver, that's a very Vancouver thing, but there's like thing. We might go on like a thing. We might go on vacation, we might take a trip, hop in an airplane, and fly somewhere to go and see something, right? Pretty low-stakes stuff. In this musical, Hamilton's first group of friends is like, hey, Hamilton, welcome in. We're going to overthrow the British government. Do you want to do, do that? Is that cool? Like, that, the stakes of this bro squad compared to IRL, but without losing the charm of it, like they're not burdened by the stress of any of this. They're just like having fun, slamming beer glasses. I just appreciated that throughout all of the high stakes nature of this bro squad when they're introduced to us, that they still have the same kind of fun vibe that you would if you just went out with your friends on a Friday night to wherever. I love it too. It's endearing, right? It's what you want for Hamilton. You know, we talked about I've never had a group of friends before earlier tonight, right? And now he has it. But at the same time, yeah, they're not uh, they're not going to throw axes, right? They're not just uh, getting together for a barbecue. They're overthrowing the largest empire the world knows at that point. I but think, they treat right? it like the same thing. They treat it like a bunch of dudes go into like a soccer game. Mm-hmm. They're like, hey, I'm John Lawrence in the place to be. And that place to be is overthrowing that government so let's roll like you know what i mean like that's i just i what i like is that the stakes don't ruin this bro squad they treat they treat this whole thing at the very beginning mm-hmm. like it's just going on a fun adventure that you and your now, friends might go on i i would argue though that that is something that can only like the feeling that you're expressing the thoughts you're expressing right that 
these are only something that come from watching this show multiple, multiple times. You know, going back to, we've talked about this before, the magical momentum of musical theater. When you watch it in the moment, you think, oh, yeah, tomorrow there will be more of us. Oh, but like all we point. need is these four people. That's it. This is all we need. <laughs> like let's go, in right? In my notes that I want to bring up, I have the quote: "Tomorrow there'll be more of us." And just my notes: "No, there fucking won't. There's gonna be like you and Washington. That's who joins. Like, there's no more of you. Where are you getting this idea that there's gonna be like? Because they do it twice. They sing this whole thing. There's a whole second rendition of it. It's like there's there's not more of you between Did the you... first time you said this. There is not any more of you. Now you're singing so it again. I don't after know, I just found it really after funny. Washington joins, did you miss the scene where Hamilton writes to Congress for number six? <laughs> yeah, okay. There is more people. He, knowing Washington has already written to Congress, suggests to Washington, hey, have you tried writing to Congress? Let me try. And idiot. Idiot. Anyways. <laughs> yeah, I just, no. I just like this whole bro squad vibe. I do too. I love that, uh, you know, uh, how into the weeds do we want to get? These four uh, guys we have represent an hour max time for all of this. Oh, okay, well it's then we're gonna get the we're gonna get real deep. Then the thing about these four is that, from what I can tell, they rep they are microcosmic representations for different parts of the fledgling country that that they were bringing into being themselves uh you know the uh have you ever read grapes of wrath by john uh, steinbeck no only steinbeck i've ever read is east of eden oh well you're which doing is a fine. mistake which is a mistake I, but i disagree but it's a I've, great I've book i've listened to i've listened to a lot of people and a lot of analysis on Steinbeck say all his previous works were like a buildup to East of Eden, which is his biggest accomplishment. And so I just haven't had the chance to go back to his other works because I'm worried I'll be... Anyways, East of Eden's the only one I've read. No worries. So I think that as an American, I think I might have more... I, I, I may have a more emotional connection to Grapes of Wrath. And so I may think that it's like more more worth reading than other people. I think that East of Eden is objectively the the best he did. But anyway, the narrative conceit behind Grapes of Wrath and the way it's structured is that you have a chapter where it's the the microcosm, it's the Jode family and like what they're dealing with. And then you have a chapter that's the nation as a whole. So like you have individuals that are representing what society is dealing with cool, on the okay. macro level, right? Sometimes it's represented by a turtle, which is really cool. Because in Grapes <laughs> of Wrath, you just you just get a description of what this turtle is going through. On this, Steinbeck hot... is like that. Steinbeck will just put you in someone's shoes, and yeah. all they could be doing is like watering the garden, and yet it's interesting. I, yeah, it's fantastic. It's it's yeah. efficient. It's lean, but it's also interesting. And in and partly because this is an American play, this is a uniquely American play. I really do evaluate this bro squad, as you label them, in a in a Steinbeckian manner, because these are the four friends that this creative team chooses to give us. And I think that this informs why 
they're put together in a way that is intentionally historically inaccurate. So, number one, we have Lawrence, right? Lawrence, to me, is the closest we get to a tried-and-true, like, American-American, I think, is the way that he's portrayed in the show. And then Hercules Mulligan is an Irish-American immigrant or the the son of an Irish-American immigrant. So he's slightly removed. And I may be mixing up the details there, but one of them... So, but what I'm saying is one of them is earlier than the other. So two different generations of being a fledgling American. Then the third step of removal would be Hamilton, who is recently arrived and is trying to make his way into citizenry by proving his worth. And then the fourth step is Lafayette, who is just an capital I immigrant. He's an immigrant immigrant. He is temporary and is going to leave, right? So I see these four individuals, this bro squad, as a cross-section of the country they're trying to make together. Could you add Burr in there as, like, the already American? Like, he's Burr, just already... Oh, Burr is the most American at right, this okay, point, cool. right? Just to yeah, add yeah, that yeah. fit. He's yeah, not part of yeah, the bro yeah. squad, but, like, just to add that... On, if, if we have the capital I immigrant, we might as well call out Burr as like the capital A American. We absolutely American. could. Yeah, because like Burr, Burr connects with Hamilton because they're both orphans. But Burr's history in America already, like his family has connections, right? Like Burr is established. And you can say the same, same thing about Washington at this point. That's why he's not part of the four. He is the venerated virginian veteran who's been a role lining up right he is like he is the veteran at this point and so yeah so in a in a very i don't know if this was on purpose or not but it speaks to me maybe i'm reading too much into it because steinbeck is a uniquely american uh, author but it really does speak to me as like these four guys are a cross-section of revolutionaries and the resultant country they're trying to make. And that's why they are the Bruds, the, the, I almost said Brute Squad. You are the Brute Squad. Uh, that, that's why they are the Bro Squad that we see, right? Right. Yeah. I, no need to linger on the Bro Squad too much, other than I find the whole complexion of it just awesome. The whole idea of it, just, just the stakes compared to what we would have now if me and my three friends wanted to go have, have a laugh. Right, like we <laughs> is is wild. Um, yeah, I mean, I I think about you know uh, what these guys are going through, and it's planning uh, which redoubt are you gonna take? Okay, I'll take the right one. And then you know, I think about texting my buddy Daniel, like, "Have you seen the new Bad Batch yet?" You know, that's exactly. Like- <laughs> right, that's exactly what I'm trying to say. Is it feels the same, but it is not the same. Right. These guys are are deal they're handling this whole situation very well mm-hmm. and very positively in a patrol. The next thing I, you've eloquently pointed out the reason this is, but just as I watched act one, I thought it was worth noting. I can't even remember why I should have wrote which part of the act one gave me this impression, but it's like, are these people even the good guys? Like I like mm. to just tell say all the time that most of life happens in the gray, some closer to white, some closer to black. 
but most of life happens firmly in the gray, right? Where at least if you're not agreeing, there's different perspectives involved and people evaluate different things differently to end up with different results in the gray, right? Like, are these people even the good guys? They're obviously portrayed as the good guys. This story is told by the winners, which is the reason for this, right? Maybe it was the moment where they just straight up like walked behind a British soldier and like stabbed him or something. And I was like, whatever, whatever choreography that was, I can't remember, but it's just worth analyzing because the musical makes these guys out like we won. Oh, we won. Ah, like I the good guys win. Hooray. But it's like, are they right? They all the most of them, not all of them, obviously Lawrence and, and Hamilton, I guess, but like, Oh, like Washington owns slaves. Like, are these guys really the good guys? What thoughts? The show is at times critiqued for whitewashing our memory of these individuals, you know, they um of of making them better than they actually were. Um I will admit I'm of the opinion that democracy in exchange for monarchy is a good trade. Uh, I I think that if you, if you have to stand up against tyranny and fight for your people and the promise of tomorrow, I think that's a good trade. I think that makes you a good guy. Um, that that's my personal opinion. Now, I also it's my personal opinion that. Today's America does not live up to the promise that yesterday's America made to us. Sure. Right? You know? I also feel like America's also always talked about as an experiment, though, which I've always liked, because it is. It's like a never-ending... Like, it's it'll never live up to the promise. It's about how close you can get. Right? It's like all the presidents always say, like, we're on the path to making a more perfect union. You're never going to like, there's no perfect union. It's never going to happen. But I like the idea that at least intent, like the intent kind of, or at least verbally is to keep working at it. Well, you, you include the phrase more perfect union in a speech for a president because you tie back to uh, the preamble to the constitution so that you can show the conservative, like constitutional loyalists that like you're, you're still willing to take a literal approach. Like that's a whole different thing. More perfect union is a very specific American phraseology that exists in the preamble. But anyway, um, I, I can just say I'm Canadian and move on. I don't need right. To yeah, exactly. You can. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, I, I, I agree that America is an ongoing experiment. But if you if you accept that construction, then you also have to be willing to admit that we've conducted experiments ourselves that we have failed or like oh, didn't turn yeah. out well right and uh at the time of the revolution i'm inclined to say that everybody involved that stood up against england was by and large a good guy because at that moment the ideals of that revolution at that point were good the stand against tyranny the stand against object lack of representation the stand against the the legacy of feudalism that created this sharp contrast between the aristocracy and the common man 
standing against that was good. I think that that was good. I'm sorry. I think the fact that America oh, won its independence are, was are good. Are they the right? good guy? Are they really the good guys? The answer doesn't have to be no, they're bad. It can't be no, yes, no, they no. are. They're... No, I'm sa- no, <laughs> I'm I'm getting I'm getting a little more I'm I'm getting a little more like granular than that. I'm saying at this point they are. But after once we start act 1 in this version of our history, as presented in this musical, once we get into making the American Republic as we know it now, that's when several of these people turn into bad guys because they start giving up parts of what they believe. They start making concessions. They start making compromises and they sell out their fellow men, which betrayed the ideals of this nation. You know, part of, Part of Hamilton giving concessions to slaveholding belies how he's portrayed in the show. You know, he talks about this nation that we now get to build. You know, if you stand for nothing, Burr, what will you fall for? Hamilton gave up the chance to exclude slavery from the Constitution. You know? So he was bad on that level. So... I think where we're at now is that with an act one analysis in mind, they are the good guys. Like the question, are we, are we the baddies? No, but with act two, which I think we should do at the end of act two, we can revisit this because they might be the baddies. Do y'all, do y'all all. see, do, do y'all see how he reigned me in? It was, it was so good. Yes. We're all good guys now. <laughs> <laughs> right. I guess, I just think it's where we're at. I just don't want to get too no, I mean, into Act Two without Act no, Two. No, I feel you. No, and I, I, I understand. I think that the 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 focus of perspective there is worthwhile because it it is worth considering, right? In the narrative structure of Act One, like we are clearly all good guys. I mean, you look at the end of Yorktown, Hamilton up front, everybody behind him. We won. We, you know, yeah. we, we all of these victor like it's it's the end of WWE Raw. Everyone's like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, uh, perfect. Uh, the next note I have is actually one you just mentioned. One of the things I wanted to bring up is I had never thought about this, but at the end of Yorktown, it's Hamilton that's at the front. He is not the general of this army. Now I get that he might just be at the front simply because the play is called Hamilton. And he's who we're following. But it's a weird... Because when he's the right-hand man, Washington, at the end of that, stands at the front, and Hamilton stands at his right hand. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Like, just like on the stage, that's how they're... Is it blocked? Is that the right word? Mm-hmm. That's how they're yeah, blocked. Yeah. That's oh, how they're blocked. Nicely yes. done, man. Yeah, nicely done. Woo. Yeah, you did. I remembered something. Okay, cool. Anyways, yeah. but in Yorktown, <laughs> the way they're blocked is that... Hamilton is at the front and Washington's off to the side. Is this just Hamilton being the star of the show? Or is this like something they're trying to tell us about how this goes down? So I see it. I I think both ways, maybe I see it three ways. So I see Hamilton at the end of the number being downstage center in front of everybody. I see him being in that place I see that paying off the promise of we can end this war at Yorktown, but for this to succeed, there's someone else we need. Like, That's a good point. Th- yeah. This this wouldn't have happened if Hamilton is not present. So 
if we put him in the foreground and we can easily see him, of course it worked. He's right here. Now, contrary to that, an inversion of, of this theory of like what is closer to you has the focus, an inversion of that is what's highest has the focus. And if I remember correctly in the in uh in the live version, Washington is upstage center at this moment, like at the top of the staircase or at the top of the like balcony upstage. So so he's behind everyone as if like they're his army going forward and he's commanding them from behind. Interesting. I'm going to quickly look up where he's so, standing. It may it may be worth a screen grab just to refresh both of our our memory, but like that's, I remember Washington being upstage center behind everybody, but I haven't watched it recently. But at the and then the third part is circling back to what you said about it's called Hamilton. That's justification enough for him to be downstage center. But I do like the significance of like him being the focal point at the end pays off Lafayette being correct about if we want this to work, we need Hamilton. I've done my work with Hercules. I've got the info. I've got the ships. It's it's going to work. Right. I have it. Washington yeah. is is in the spot Hamilton was, right-hand man. Washington is in the right-hand spot just behind Hamilton, like off to the side on a bench. Oh, yeah. So well, he's that's... not in the balcony. He's off. That's, I thought it was just an inversion. Right. So he's so, off so to no, the right So I'm conflating side. things. I'm confusing it with the end of nonstop, right? So that, like, that's a, that's a super inversion there, right? Because that is definitely Hamilton taking stage from Washington. And then, like, the, that negates my third point about Washington... Like it, the character intentionally giving focus to everybody else, but the first two I think still stand. Yeah, Lafayette's off to his left side, and Washington's off to his right side. They're both standing on like benches or chairs or whatever. Yeah, but so still, what? The, Peggy and Peggy's in the balcony. <laughs> cool, <laughs> where she belongs. Where she's on stage again. All right, yeah, cool. yeah. It's the, you know. It's one of those things where, you know, history remembers Washington, obviously, as more of the leader, more of the commander than Hamilton, because it took until, when was the Chernow book post uh, published, you know? It took until the millennium for us to wake up to Hamilton's historical record, right? But this show does make the adaptive choice to put him in the foreground. And, you know, again, I, you know, it, it may boil down to just being as simple as it's his show. Right. Sure. I was just wondering if you had any. It just stuck out, stuck out to me as I was like looking for things to talk about that we didn't yeah. talk about. That seemed like one that I was like, oh, that sounds like something we would have talked about in that episode. Yeah, I still I, I do stand by the idea that like it it answers the promise that Lafayette challenged earlier. Like we won't succeed unless we have Hamilton. And then at the end of it, it's let's remind you we succeeded because of Hamilton, sure. you know, and you could, you could do that. If the show was called Burr, you could still have a musical number called Yorktown or have a musical number called, I don't know, Birmingham. 
like where one care <laughs> like one character is needed to solve a problem and at the end of that number you have that character up front and like it was me i fixed right. it you're welcome sure. right you know uh, and then they go away. It just so happens that that character in this instance happens to also be the titular character. Right. Cool. Uh, just something I thought we should quickly bring up. The next thing I have on my list is Washington is at the wedding. Washington is at the wedding between Hamilton and Eliza. And we do not get a Washington drinking scene with the lads. This is preposterous. This is unacceptable. This better have been one of those songs that got cut. I would like Washington choreography drinking with the lads. How did we miss this? How did we not get this? Obviously, that relationship probably doesn't exist. But like, if Washington's at this wedding and drinking, I want the drunk Washington with the lads scene. See, there was another duel that's not shown on stage. And Washington was like, fuck it. I am not drinking with these. Like I told you <laughs> not to duel. You went, you just got married. You're going to have a duel. I'm not drinking with you ever again. Sure. Okay. So Washington yeah. is just, our head canon is that Washington is just like, nah, nah fuck these it's guys. puzzling, right? It is puzzling. Washington being there. We've seen Philip Schuyler as a character on stage and it's Washington that's there instead of Philip Schuyler. Like it is very puzzling. It's just the whole thing. Like, yeah. It's like, it doesn't like stick out like a sore thumb. It's just like, it's one of those things that you, you grab onto it and you want more. You're like, Hey, how does yeah. this work? Yeah. I just what's, like want, I want this scene now of Washington at the wedding. I want like a satisfied from Washington's perspective. Like I remember oh. that night and like, like, so instead of remembering the the original ball, right? Like I remember, like I want Room Washington's. I remember that party. night. I want Washington's. I remember that night, and that night is the wedding, and I want him to just riff about drinking with the guys. That's all I want. That's all I'm saying. Just thought I'd point it out, Lim Manuel. If we ever have you on, if you the could fact add that, that scene, the fact that they never did that as a ham for ham is infuriating to me now. <laughs> uh, Oh um, me. The next question I have for you is actually theater related. Because often we just pointed out Peggy being uh in the balcony for Yorktown. Um this came up when I was rewatching Ten Dual Commandments, where a lot of the characters are up in the gallery. At what point are people their characters? And at what point are they part of the ensemble? Because I continuity-wise, right, if you have Eliza in the balcony, in character, in costume, watching this duel happen, right? You have to understand that she is not there watching this happen and does not know of this happening, right? She will only know what Hamilton tells her, but what the choreography is telling us is that she is there watching it. And you, it kind of leaves you to figure out who's really there. Like, is there any kind of tricks in the theater industry to help make that distinction between characters that are in the balcony and actually present or characters that are in the balcony to fill the balcony and just be like a symbolic? Part of it is asked and answered yourself, right? Because you 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 describe a situation in which the audience is left to their own devices to decide who this character is at this moment and what role they're playing. Um, I think that that's at times intentional in not only this show, but others it's 
difficult to explain, but I'm going to attempt to. This is something that I believe about theater, but it's not necessarily true that everyone believes this about theater, but I'm going to try to explain. it. I believe that what you, and then I'll get back to actually answering your question. Sorry. I believe that what, I believe that what we, uh, what we consider to be a character, like a capital C character, right? I believe that that actually only exists halfway between the actors and the audience. Because what a character actually is, I don't really think that you can you can have that without the audience bringing their emotions and their beliefs to the theater. And then you portray a character to them, and then they have their thoughts about it, they have their feelings about it. And then somewhere in that space between the audience seat and the edge of the stage, a character is created. Gotcha. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Right? Like, they're... You know, when you leave the theater, you know, you, you you get in an Uber with somebody, you're talking about the show, you're going to you're going to bring your preconceived notions to that show, whether it's right or wrong for you to do so. The design, the characters, all of that, like, is going to be influenced by what you brought to the show. Now, that being said. You you give when you're delineating who a character is in any given moment, you are assigning agency to the audience member watching the show because their takeaway is going to be influenced by their preconceived notions and their entire life experience. People ask me, how long did it take you to write that like cue? And I answer my entire life because writing that like cue is influenced by every day I've ever lived. It's a sum and, of your total experience up until that point. And then, your ex- yeah, and your then exper- that light cue becomes part of your experience for the next light cue. For the next one. It's a never-ending, yeah. And your experience watching a play is informed by your yesterday and the day before that. It's not It's not just us. We're not, you know, we're not unique in that. Like, your your experience seeing a painting is influenced by every painting you've seen before. Now, all that being said, how do we say who's a character and who's ensemble? Well, ensemble is a character too, first of all, but also Hamilton specifically. And it has to overcome these preconceived notions that you're bringing to the theater. It has to overcome that relationship, that 50% between the stage and the audience, or embrace it. So what Hamilton does is it has this costume design. It has this neutral beige and cream slick line costume design that the ensemble has and who stands out men with coats men with great big jackets men with hats or props right you got a sword or a pen you're different you got a gun you're different you got a jacket you're different you're different to the point where we have spent how much time talking about the lengths of sleeves, first of all, right? <laughs> you see, right? Yes, so, yes. Okay, I'm not going to get into it, but yes. Yeah. So, the Schuyler sisters, they have these dresses. The three Schuyler sisters, when, when they are on the balcony, they're in their dress. Peggy is always in a dress. Angelica's always in her dress. Angelica never puts on the base whites of the ensemble. 
Now I say base whites because that's a that's a industry jargon term. They're cream, they're beige, whatever. But I'm calling them their their base whites, their stock whites, right? Uh, Betsy never puts on stock whites. They are always their character. Okay. In addition to that, we have the lighting design. When when you have characters up on the balcony, they're already separated spatially. So the coloring can either connect these people to what's going on on stage or separate them. And oftentimes, what's done in this show and, and what's done in other shows, too, as a way to, to separate people, you light them in different textures or different colors, right? And, and, and when you watch Act 1 of Hamilton, you often have the main playing field in cools and accent points on the gallery in warms. So what's going on on deck level on zero might be uh, in blues or purples. And what's going on upstairs and upstage is ambers or greens or both, right? So you have the separation of color. When those are unified in color, when we have a connection in texture and color, then you can understand visually that these people are occupying the same space. But when they're when they're separated by lighting situations and they're situated when they're separated by costuming conventions that's when you know that they're in a different place that is when you know you might have someone in hamilton reading a letter crossing across the gallery and that maybe they're reacting to this moment in a different place and time because so much of this show happens out of time with itself look at uh thinking of like when uh uh when philippa sue crosses lin manuel on the turntable in nonstop, right right? those those two moments are happening in different times yeah yeah yeah. and so that that idea is just extrapolated from from on stage on zero to upstage and the surround, the gallery, right? And and I, from what I can tell, the show aims to do that through costuming and lighting. The real key that that's the long answer. The short, the the really short answer. If I want to distill that all down again, just as a reminder, watch when someone is wearing their base whites or they're wearing an accent costume piece. And number two, compare how someone is lit in terms of color and texture compared to the focal point of the scene or number. And usually, the characters you're talking about, if you follow those design elements, nine times out of ten are represented as their characters always. It's only the minor characters that move in and out of the ensemble like the Schuyler sisters burr right washington they never really fall into that ensemble territory whereas the dude who plays charles lee does and the dude who plays the farmer or philip Schuyler goes back to the ensemble when they're done with their yeah you know and it's you know charles lee like because of because of the eclective design of the ensemble like they all have similar line they have an identical color palette, but similar line. They all have their own diversions. 
but Charles Lee, he's got that unique, uh, he's got that, you know, at the drive in sunny day, real estate, Coheed and Cambria, very specific right? coat. Like he's right? very specifically dressed. Yeah, he does. But it's just for that moment. Yeah. So, but you know, for that moment, he stands out as Charles Lee. It's perfect. But when he falls back into the ensemble, he's just ensemble. Similar to uh, similar to Sexy Doctor. I can't tell you <laughs> where else in the show Sexy Doctor is. Sexy Doctor is Philip Schuyler when he's proposing or when Hamilton's proposing or talking to him. That messes with me, man. But, you know, there, there are specific there are specific choices you can make, right, to make right. these ensemble think, you know, so but largely, you know, it is the the way I do it, the the way me and my colleagues uh, do it collaboratively together is we use lighting and costumes to break people out, bring them into focus when we want to. And then when we need to to make them disappear, we can. Right. It's about contrast and comparison. Um, and. You know, I think. Here's honestly, here's my takeaway. The fact that you wonder about it leads me to believe that that Hamilton does it really well because oh, it's incredible. I because because there's no main, definitive answer, right? It's main, just something it you just, wonder about. Like when it's a main character, sometimes they make it really obvious. So like in Satisfied, when the whole premise of Satisfied is that Angelica is remembering this night. She mm-hmm. is telling you her version of events after it's happened. I'll remember that night. I'll regret that night for the rest of my day. So you already have the 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 idea, right? You're already the whole song is framed in the idea that this is a recollection of the same events, but from Angelica's perspective. So when she talks about Hamilton's um, hunger pang frame and all that, and Hamilton is on the stage, he is clearly a memory. He is like mm-hmm. leaning in like a statue and we have not seen that before. That is how Angelica is recollecting Hamilton in that moment. That's not something we saw Hamilton do when he was actually like there in Helpless, if that makes sense. So it's kind of obvious there's separation there. But like in Ten Dual Commandments, when uh, whoever it is, Eliza, I think it's Eliza, it might be Peggy, is on the balcony in her dress just watching the duel, I have a hard time discerning whether like I have a hard time discerning what they want me to feel. Cause I know for a fact, Eliza's not at the duel or watching the duel. It, are they putting her there? So I can insinuate that Hamilton told her about the duel and she knows about it. Like, I just don't know why, like, what are they, what do the people want me to think about seeing a character in costume that I know is not present, but that is watching the event from above. I'm just like that part of it. I'm like, I never know how to feel about it. So I did don't. you, did you mention 10 duel earlier by name and i totally glossed over it oh maybe i don't know okay if you did i am so sorry and listeners if bradley mentioned 10 duel commandments specifically by name earlier and i missed it (laughs) i apologize to you too here's the thing 10 duel doesn't count okay (laughs) okay fair enough so 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 here's the thing about 10 duel Okay, and and everything that I like because I I spent a lot of time earlier talking about a lot of stuff, but here's the thing about Tendul. 
it's all valuable Tim, stuff. Like it's all stuff I don't know, or the audience who's listening to this probably doesn't know. So it's all valuable I'm, stuff. You know, and I'm happy to share it, but I also like I want to answer questions specifically, and if I gloss over a detail, it changes my it changes my potential answer. Here's the fucking thing about Ten Duel. You have to you have to realize that Ten Duel is unique in its orchestration. Ten Duel uses every member of the ensemble as a narrator in a way that other songs don't. Because part of the intention of Ten Duel is to explain to the audience that dueling was just part of society. It was just the way it was. Bring it back. The murder is bad. I the murder is that. bad, but bring, but it, bring back, it back, right? Yeah. Nerf duels, let's go. <laughs> and that is why almost every single line in Ten Duel is from a different actor on stage. There's no narrator versus character on stage doing Ten Duel. It's, I say this line, I say this line, I say this line. So when you have someone on the gallery watching this, they're just participating in the exercise of communicating to the audience that this is a communicable experience. This is a communal right, activity. So someone like Eliza, right? knows of dueling, is familiar with this, would not be surprised that this is happening. So right. her on the like she's on the balcony and she's not freaking out. Like she understands yeah. that this is a She's thing. there, it exists, you know. So her being present for it, this is a part of life, right? So so Tim Duel doesn't count. Now sure. it does it, you know. But, you know, during Stay Alive, right, the women hovering during Stay Alive matters, right? Right. Um, but, but yeah, now, it does, Ten Duel can matter in a way because Eliza is less involved in this. She's very active during uh, the duel between Hamilton and Burr. Like, that affects her greatly, right? Yes. At this point in her say, life. I would say so. It does. Yeah. And, and as much as her husband gets shot and dies. Yeah. I would, yeah. I would say uh, at, at this point in her life, it's just saying that like she's part of society. And that's why everybody is involved in Tindul is just because it's a societal thing. You know, uh, I, I am really looking forward to, to editing this audio and scrubbing through and like you mentioning Tindul and I totally uh, jumped over it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, while you were going on, I wasn't like, ah, oh, he's not even answering my question. Like, I didn't feel that way. I was like, oh, this is so cool. <laughs> it's totally fine. I might have mentioned it. It's just, I just want to, like, there's just different ways to use characters. And Hamilton is a show that puts characters on the stage that sometimes aren't there in the moment. They could be recollections. They could be just there to prove a point, right? They could be there to just insinuate that oh this character is thinking about that character or yeah. we want you to see this character so you think about this character and so it's just trying to figure it's just trying to sort out like when is someone in character when is someone a, a spectator when is somebody there to um promote the idea that they are a recollection or to prompt the audience to think about them and there's just all these things going on that you have to watch the musical a bunch of times to have an opinion on it um, so I just thought it was something worth bringing up and chatting about, you know? Well, it absolutely was, you know, and the reason, you know, I, I, I clarified Ten Duel or not, like it's, it's worth bringing up because the, the success of having rules is their consistency. And Hamilton, for the most part, is very consistent. You have narrator Burr, you have direct address exposition Hamilton, 
and otherwise you have characters. And Tenduel is the exception, and that's where all the exposition and narration is split up between everybody, so as to express that it's part of general general populace. You know, it's just the way the society worked. So, if if the characters are if part of how the characters are displayed on stage is causing you confusion in that number, it is different from them causing you confusion in a different one because specificity in how we stage numbers is very important. Because once we establish rules as, as theatricians, once we establish a visual vocabulary, if we change it and then it becomes confusing, then we've told a bad story. You know? no, I'm not saying it was it was just something I wanted to point out for other people who may have found it confusing. It's not something I was particularly confused about. It's just something that Hamilton does. I'm like, ooh, we didn't talk about this once. Yeah. During the act one. I've never thought about it before. And even if like nobody listening is grateful you brought it up, I am. <laughs> because I like I don't it's one of the things I like about doing this show, I I come up with things I've never thought about. Like you bring something up or you just type something in the notes where I'm like, shit, I should look into that, you know? And I either, I either think about something new or I learn something new. So regardless, I'm glad you brought it up. All right. The, the, we're, we're, we're approaching two and a half hours, which I think is a, is a nice time for this podcast to sit at. Remind people that these are long podcasts after the last kind of shorter one. <laughs> we're just to get people in the rhythm for... We got one more before Act 2 starts. I think the last thing I wanted to bring up here, just because I know it's going to happen in Act 2 and I just want to get ahead of it, I just want to point out how love, like helpless, satisfied, the wedding, all of this stuff, just how nice is it that Hamilton and Eliza are in love? They're getting married. Things are going relatively well. He remembers that she exists for like 10 minutes and feels kind of bad about it. Um, everything pre kind of yanking out of the hand at the very end of nonstop, right? Mostly fine. And I just wanted to shout out like, hey, for a brief moment, this was nice. It was lovely. We enjoyed it. You know, people are in love, they're getting married, Angelica might be pissed about it, but hey, it's fine, because Act is gonna hit, like, a fucking cement truck, concrete, whatever, and I'm gonna dump on Hamilton a whole lot, so I just wanted to be here right now saying it was nice to see Hamilton in love and enjoying himself and drunk at a wedding and, like, rapping to his wife about how little money he has and she doesn't care and how, how lovely that is. I just, want to, I just want to point that out before it becomes a little less lovely. The, there's more play. It doesn't It doesn't end with them happy no, and having one kid. I don't think and so. And their kid th- lives forever. Yeah, I think they're going to go through some stuff in Act 2. And I think it's mostly going to be 100% Hamilton's fault. So. <laughs> it's, I, am, I am looking forward to exploring this with you. And I'm glad you brought it up. Because... It is very much up to the viewer or listener. Like, is Hamilton truly regretful? Is he truly sorry? Or is he just trying to make amends with Betsy, right? Like, where did that love go? Or, like, first of all, you have to decide, did that love go away? Right, there's a lot for us to discuss. Yeah, you know, I'm looking forward to it. Emotionally, 
this was nice and lovely to watch. It is. I know. I, I, I mean, love like, that you brought it up. There are points where it's strained. It just gets less lovely. And I just wanted to sit in the loveliness of a new love emerging, sprouting out of the ground like a, of like a flower or like coming out of a cocoon like a butterfly before uh, someone swats the butterfly down, you know? Yeah, this is, uh, this is you and I... Uh leaving the dock uh stepping foot uh on the orca going out to sea going uh i love martha's vineyard (laughs) that's exactly (laughs) it that's exactly (laughs) it we're we're sailing uh bow first into a hurricane and we're remembering that we used to live at martha's vineyard and that was nice (laughs) and we enjoyed that and that was better um yeah, there's nothing else really on this list that I think we 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 missed too much. Those were most. Do you have anything that I mean, this this list is mostly just my notes, much like the character study was mostly your notes. <laughs> so is there anything <laughs> that you were like, oh man, we missed that or? No, I'm pretty happy. I uh, I very much appreciated uh, your indulgence in the first part of the episode, just letting me rant along like a wild man, and. Uh, Looking forward to Q&A in Intermission Episode 3. I got some good questions for you. Such as, is Peggy the highest win-over replacement character? (laughs) (laughs) Just some really hard, you know, some really hard-hitting, super important questions that we need answered. The the hardest-hitting questions. They're so important. Everyone who watches Hamilton is like, I want to know who the highest (laughs) character is. Uh, the, the thing that's going to hit me the hardest, honestly, if I'm really being candid, what would hit me real hard is if all your Bridgerton people would inspire our Hamilton people to actually email us some questions for the next episode. I got another email this week of a Bridgerton person who's just super pissed off that I haven't (laughs) yet recorded an episode that covers like that it's been renewed through season four and that the Duke isn't coming back and all of that stuff. So I'm going to have to record an emergency pod soon. (laughs) Because at the end I was like, hey, we'll do some emergency episodes, but like maybe I'll see you in season two. And now they're just like, ah! So, um, yeah. If you are listening to this podcast and you're only going to email us once or tweet at us once, now is the best time. We are doing a Q&A episode. I got lots of questions. I'm sure overall we're going to have loads of questions between the two of us, but we'd like your questions more. So Twitter at Let's Dive Deep, Gmail, Let's Dive Deep Pod at gmail.com, both of which are in the show notes. Head over there. Any question doesn't matter. You can even ask the question is Peggy the highest win over replacement character in Hamilton? <laughs> that question's allowed. Anything you got. All right. Is there anything else you want to add before we wrap up? No, that's it. Thanks for listening. But, you know, thanks more for writing. Right. there. Yeah, thanks more for writing. All right. Thank you guys so much for being here today. As mentioned previously, there's a Bridgerton deep dive. Uh, not fully deep, though, because I haven't done an emergency pod mid-season yet. So we'll have to get to that. But that podcast is in the... Uh, description below the show notes you can also just go to your favorite podcast and go let's dive deep bridgerton otherwise just thank you guys so much for being here don't forget to go and rate and review the podcast so it gets out to more people tell all your 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 lovely friends or family or dogs or whatever that like hamilton that this podcast exists um and we will see you in the next one next week for a q a episode